welcome to the Ramble Room. This is Diane, and I'm here with Ken, as usual. And David Iverson is sitting here. Hi, Diane. Hi. And Garrett Lindemann is sitting here. Hi, Diane. Hello. Hi, Ken. Our special guest today is Charles Cole. Hello. Hi. I think I met you probably about 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember when that was, but um, he was speaking on his experiences in Russia, and uh, we had taken our school kids there to a, a talk that he gave at the YMCA, and um, I bought his and read his book, which is called In Russian Wonderland, about his experiences in the Russia in the 70s. Charles Cole is an honor graduate of the Defense Language Institute's Russian course. He also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Russian. He's been actively engaged in the study and professional application of the Russian language for over 50 years. His current work in Russian Wonderland highlights his observations of daily life in the USSR from his six-month tour of duty as a Russian-speaking guide on a United States Information Agency exhibit traveling within the Soviet Union. Cole's experience includes a two-year tour of military duty at a U.S. Army Security Agency in Germany monitoring Soviet military radio communications, six years as a warrant officer in a U.S. Army Reserve Psychological Operations Battalion writing leaflets and broadcast materials targeted at Soviet forces in East Germany, and 30 years of teaching and managing Russian language programs to U.S. military personnel at the Defense Language Institute. He is also currently writing for the Conservative Chronicle. And have you started on your new book? Just starting it now. Put it together, yes. Okay. So tell us the name of it, because I think that's probably what we're talking about today, really, is the concept. Well, actually, the book will be... uh, I'm going to try to move forward some of the things that I described that I saw in the Soviet Union because uh, never in my wildest nightmares did I think I'd see anything even resembling that in the United States. Well, good morning. The tape is fast-forwarded, and here we are, and I'm seeing way too much of it. So uh, I think the title is going to be, can't hold me this necessarily, it's going to be Echoes of Tyranny, colon, Will We Never Learn? And let's try to link a lot of the things that uh, from the past, as I'm going to try to do today in our talk, uh, with what we're seeing today. And uh, it's it's a pretty scary scenario when you stack back and take the 30,000-foot view of it. It's it's not, not a pleasant view, but I think it's something that has to be told, and I'm hoping to get it out in time for the election season because people need to finally make a decision. I mean, uh, I've, I've also thought up a new little quip that I'm going to try to use in the book, and that is people have a choice. You can either learn from history or... You can live with not learning from it, and uh, right. I think it was—I think it was Anne Rand who famously noted that you can deny reality, but you can't deny—you can't escape the consequences of denying reality. And I think that's—that links into what we're going to talk about today with Vladimir Putin and everything that's going on over in Ukraine. Well, take it away. Okay, I'll—I'll uh, uh, I'll be reading from some notes that I that I compiled here. Uh, so that I can keep this kind of kind of organized. Um, <clears throat> there was an old lawyer, and I just checked him up today. I checked up on him. His name is Benjamin Ferenc. He just turned 102 years old uh, last week. He was a very sharp lawyer in the in the 1940s, and he was uh, selected to be part of the prosecution at Nuremberg, the War Crimes Tribunal. And based on that, the very next year, 1947. Um, 
he was the chief prosecutor uh, in trying 24 uh, former leaders of the Nazi uh, Einsatzgruppen. These were the special f troops that Hitler had sent into uh, Poland and the Soviet Union to do uh, some real swell things like line up Jewish women and children, dig a huge pit, shoot them, throw them in the pit, and then access for the next one. So uh, where it links in, as Ferenc noted in, uh, in that process, he said, if we want to stop mass murderers and tyrants, uh, we have to find out what makes them tick. Um, and today, uh, despite all the dime store psychologist claims, you know, I've heard everything from Vladimir Putin has been stolen by aliens and replaced by a clone, or that he's lost his marbles, or that he must have a terminal disease uh, causing him to do what he's doing in Ukraine. If we really want to understand why he's doing all this, we need to look at the world through his eyes. We need to understand what he has seen and learned throughout his life to know where his worldviews come from. So some of this has to start with history, uh, quite a bit of it. Let's talk about Putin's background for a moment. Some eight years ago, Vladimir Putin infamously said that, quote, the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, end quote. I'm going to just pause and think about that for a minute. That kind of lets you know what he, who he is at, at his core. Another relevant fact is that in response to a comment made by a Russian official about the guy having been a former KGB man, Putin interrupted and said, wait a minute, there is no such thing as a former KGB man, end quote. Uh, Putin, as I think everybody knows, uh, was a longtime officer of the KGB, and it was a lieutenant colonel uh, at the time that the USSR fell apart. I think these two quotes speak volumes as to how Putin views Russia and the world. Uh, as we discuss facts from history, which I believe are relevant to the current situation, we should probably keep in mind how those events helped form the person we know as Vladimir Putin. As to the historical background... Given the fact that Vladimir Putin was born, raised, and grew up in the Soviet Union, his attitudes toward the West uh, were formed decades ago. We need to keep that in mind if we're to understand his thought processes and what, he's, and what signals he sees in Western geopolitical actions that might induce him to act in the way that we perhaps don't fully understand. In order to understand these things, we need to examine certain historical facts uh, which have impacted on all Soviet officials over time, including Putin and his KGB-affiliated associates, of which in Russian today, I would add, there are a lot. We need to begin with the 1930s. In late 1932, Soviet dictator Yosef Stalin ordered the, secret, the Soviet secret police, the uh, NKVD, the forerunner of the KGB, uh, to seal off the Ukraine and to take away all grain and food supplies. Thus, during the winter of 1932-33, seven million Ukrainians were intentionally and maliciously starved to death. This explains some of the residual feelings, by the way, that uh, many Ukrainians have towards the Russians even today. Even though certain Western quote-unquote journalists, such as the New York Times' Walter Duranty, played down and even denied the facts of this disaster, it was nonetheless reported in several Western news sources. But the West did nothing. 
It was a sign to Stalin that he could act as he wished and he wouldn't be challenged internally or externally. Putin knows this. In August of 1939, two weeks before the Nazi Germany invaded Poland and Second World War, Stalin concluded a mutual non-aggression pact with Hitler. On September 1, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Great Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany, but did nothing to help the Poles defend themselves. Some two weeks later, in accordance with a secret protocol in the German-Soviet pact, Stalin invaded Poland from the east and occupied the other half of the country. Putin knows this as well. From Lenin's time on, the Soviet NKVD had run a vast concentration camp system. Between 1939 and 1941, the NKVD taught the German Gestapo many techniques as to running concentration camps and even extermination camps. The Germans put this information to active use in, in murdering millions of people. Many Western socialists supported the idea, uh, the eugenics-based idea, of social or societal engineering, that is, killing off the quote-unquote less productive individuals in a society. <clears throat> Uh, the Germans used this approach <clears throat> in building uh, their extermination camps, and the West said virtually nothing until those camps were finally overrun towards the end of the war. Although the Soviets denied it for decades after the war, Nazi Germany and the USSR were allies for almost two full years. In 1939, Stalin attacked neutral Finland and bombed its citizens. The press in the West reported it, but the only price Stalin paid for that was to be expelled from the League of Nations. And he could not have cared less about that. Putin knows this as well. In June of 1941, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Toward the end of 41, after America had entered the war, the Roosevelt administration adopted an approach which can be described as, uh, quote, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, end quote. Throughout the entire war, America not only provided massive aid to Stalin, but also conducted widespread public relations programs to convince the American people that the Russians were true allies. FDR referred to the murderous Stalin as Uncle Joe. Time magazine named Stalin as Man of the Year during the war. Movies were made, for example, Mission to Moscow which grossly misrepresented the Soviet Union, depicting it as a courageous, freedom-loving society fighting against tyranny. And I want to read you a quote here uh, from Franklin Roosevelt himself. William Bullitt, who had been one of Roosevelt's advisors to the Soviet Union, uh, said to Roosevelt, you know, you might want to tap down, the, tap the brakes a little on this uh, Lend-Lease thing to Stalin. Roosevelt replied to Bullitt, quote, I think if I give him everything I possibly can and ask nothing from him in return, noblesse oblige, he won't try to annex anything and will work for me for a world of peace and democracy, end quote. Well, by the way, Putin knows all about that, too. At the Allied conferences during the war, Tehran and Yalta, FDR acceded to virtually every demand made by Stalin. This resulted in allowing the Soviets to liberate, quote-unquote, 
all the countries of Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe. This, in turn, consigned over 90 million people to what ended up to be over 40 years of Soviet domination. Putin was not only aware of this, but as a KGB officer assigned to East Germany, he participated in the brutal Soviet repression in East Germany. After the war, the Allies held trials of the leaders of Nazi Germany at Nuremberg. And while this was a noble and necessary act, what remains a dark stain on this process is the fact that representatives of the Soviet Union were permitted to participate in the prosecution of war crimes. Soviet General Rudyenko presented the case for one count of these indictments despite the fact that the world knew, or certainly should have known, that the Soviet Union had murdered millions of its own citizens. Um, the, uh, in fact, as an aside, General Rudyenko mentioned that he, in his uh, indictment speech there, he said these criminals, these war criminals, did horrific things in concentration camps. And they murdered many Poles. We now know the whole story of Stalin's gulag, his, his repressive uh, concentration camp network. And we also know, it came out of the Soviet archives, that on March the 4th, 1940, Stalin and several of his henchmen signed a document approving the murder of thousands of Polish officers. And yet, the world allowed this guy, Rudyenko, representing Stalin, to stand there and appear to be just a regular prosecutor like the others. Uh, by the way, Putin is aware of all of this, too. Now, the Cold War, throughout Vladimir Putin's developmental years in the 1950s and 60s, and all during his years of service, as it were, to the USSR, the Soviet Union and its protégés in communist China were busy spreading the worldwide socialist revolution to other nations while maintaining their iron-fisted control of Eastern Europe. Whenever trouble, so to speak, would arise, <clears throat> the Soviets would brutally repress those wishing to shed the chains of communism. Uprising in East Berlin in 1953, Budapest in 56, and Prague in 1968, the Soviet and Warsaw Pact tanks and troops mercilessly suppressed those popular uprisings for over 40 years, and the West stood by and watched. For decades, the Soviets continued to exile large numbers of enemies of the people to concentration camps all over the USSR. There were hundreds of them. <clears throat> Putin knew all about this. He also watched the West watching and doing nothing. Putin also watched as the United States, bearing the burden of the vaunted United Nations, waged limited military engagements, most notably in Korea and in the early 50s and in Vietnam from 65 to 72. The West's goals seemed to be stalemate, as evidenced by the tepid, often half-hearted actions taken by Washington, D.C., in response to communist clear aggression. Putin never forgot that. Uh, he also, by the way, never forgot the images of the helicopters leaving the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Uh, 
the, the swell way that, that we ended up leaving there. Nor did, and he obviously linked that to what we saw in Afghanistan not long ago. These things are signals to people like Putin. Well, as to the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, uh, finally, as the Soviet Union became weaker in an effort to match uh, the Western powers in the arms race, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, he realized that strong arm tactics and brutality could no longer keep the Eastern Europeans in bondage. One by one, these nations simply demanded freedom. Famously, the Berlin Wall, which, by the way, the East Germans had called the, quote, anti-fascist protective barrier, was opened, and communism fell. Putin was stationed at the KGB headquarters in Dresden, East Germany, uh, during all of this. He saw the demise of the system. He had served all his life, and it left an indelible impression on him. He was determined that Russia would never again be humiliated like that. And he purposed himself to the reemergence of Russia as a world power, and nothing was going to stop him from doing this. Today, we're seeing the results. The biggest problem in all this occurred due to the fact that after 74 years of brutally suppressive and murderous rule, the Soviet Union was permitted to simply melt away. Former, formerly high-ranking members of the Communist Party simply tore up their party cards. Germany was quietly reunited, and now we see in Germany efforts at rewriting history to focus all moral outrage on Nazi Germany, but none on East Germany and the Soviet Union. If a formerly totalitarian state doesn't come to terms with its past, it can never truly develop into a functioning, civilized democracy. Thus, we see Russia doing these things today in clear violation of international norms. Putin, by the way, views any attack, verbal or physical, on the Soviet Union as an attack on Russia. Well, I'll conclude this part of the program just by quoting the great Vladimir Lenin. Uh, he was quoted as, as saying that his preferred foreign policy strategy was to probe with bayonets. If you find mush, you push. If you find steel, you withdraw. Seems Putin is following the same strategy today. So that was my kind of factual background and lead into this. I don't think we can understand all these things that are going on unless we view that in the context of what Putin has seen, what Putin knows and how he views all these things. When you, uh, when you have an, Amer an American administration that comes in on day one, uh, cancels virtually all of the energy production f facilities of this country, uh, nixed the uh, XL pipeline, told Anwar in Alaska, slow down, has slow walked the permits necessary for the leases, uh, Putin looks at that and says, well, that's just great. That means my oil, I can charge more for it, see? Then he sees that Germany, uh, by the way, as a backgrounder, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this fellow, Rick Grinnell. He was the, um, he was, I believe, uh, Trump's ambassador to Germany for a while. He has reported recently he 
begged, the Trump administration begged Germany not to sign this Nord Stream 2 pipeline deal with Russia. They were begging and said, don't do that. You're going to consign yourself. You're going to become dependent on that guy for your energy production. You can't do that. Well, Germany did it. And I, I have heard recently that uh, Herr that, uh, Schröder, the, the uh, now chancellor of Germany, uh, did or maybe still does sit on the board of, uh, of uh, Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. See, these things, when they happen, combined with an Afghanistan debacle, combined with the other things we see, combined with things like the, 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 uh, the main general of the United States, Milley, saying things like, well, we have to deal with white rage. You know, we've got our biggest problem today is white supremacy. Putin looks at this and he says, you know, my old KGB training taught me this. Always look for opportunities. And when you see the convergence of opportunity and weakness on the part of an adversary, when they come together, that forms the necessary and sufficient uh, background to go ahead and do the kinds of things that he's doing right now. So given all that, you have to ask what we've learned. Unfortunately, I read a I read a story out of the Washington Free Beacon Journal. I think it was that two days ago, the Biden administration and Russia has confirmed it that they they've uh, they've now anointed Russia as the negotiator with Iran for this new uh, renewal of the of the infamous uh, Obama uh, business of the uh, nuclear deal with Iran, and they've held out something like ten billion dollars in concessions. So on the one hand, what does Putin see? He sees Biden standing there saying, Putin's a war criminal. And on the other hand, he sees, by the way, we want you to run this for us. And, and they have, as I understand it, unless this is incorrect, they have in, they've indicated that any sanctions against Russia uh, that could impose on this deal will be null and void. They'll just ignore that part because they want this deal with Iran. I suppose it may be an effort to get a discount price on him buying Iranian oil since he won't let us do our own. Um, but Germany has learned uh, an incredible lesson out of this and hopefully the whole world has because moving forward uh, you better be real careful about who you make deals with. You better be very careful about trying to understand, I think the time was it right for the American administration to uh, to uh, provide these uh, javelin weapons and the Stinger missiles and the ammo and the machine guns and all that to Ukraine? Yes. However, why wasn't that done in November, December? The Russian forces had been massing on the Ukrainian border for quite a while. Did they think this was really a training exercise, like Putin said? Uh, that was the time to provide all this stuff, uh, MiGs from Poland, Javelin and Stinger missiles, etc. Now that we've got, what is a couple thousand dead Ukrainians, now that the horses are 20 miles down the track, we're going to lock up the barn. That just That is just so typical of how we've dealt for 45 years during the Cold War. The West looked the other way, kicked the can down the road, pretended like, well, we can't do anything about it. It was like a friend of mine years ago. This poor old fella had smoked two packs of Camel cigarettes a day, 
for like 35 years, and he was crestfallen. He was he was thunderstruck that uh, he was diagnosed with emphysema. Really? Well, you know, Ayn Rand all over again. You can you can look the other way and deny the realities, but sooner or later, the price of that comes due, and I think that's where we are today. I was looking for the video that you sent. There's a video on YouTube. Well, there's actually, I, I did want to bring up that one and a couple other. The, um, the one I sent you uh, is called The Soviet Story. You can get this uh, through Amazon on DVD for $7.95, or you can watch it for free on YouTube. There's another one the same way. You can buy the DVD on Amazon, pretty cheap, $13, I think. And you can find it by episode by episode on uh, YouTube. It's called World War II Behind Closed Doors. It was made after a lot of the archives were opened and they found things like that document that Stalin and his pals signed. Very interesting show. Uh, I mean, a lot of it has, you, you have to kind of listen to the Russian and the German guy's subtitles. So uh, I can verify that the translations on both of those are completely accurate. The, the subtitles are exactly what these actors are saying in the States. It was something that was done with actors, professional actors, but it's all based on the actual history of it. And before I relinquish the mic, I, I, would, be, I would be definitely <laughs> remiss if I didn't point out that uh, as to my my future writing endeavors, I'm going to try to link some of the things we see today to some of the things that I saw in the past and others have seen. Uh, we think today that the media is kind of in the pocket of certain people. Uh, I think I know where they got it and they got their training. There was a fellow named Joseph Davies. He was uh, Roosevelt's second, I think, after Bullitt. He was the second ambassador to the Soviet Union. This guy in the 1930s sat there, and he bought every tale that the Soviet propaganda apparatus told him. Uh, he, he, he came out of there. If he wasn't a Stalinist, he was certainly an apologist by the time he left. And the Roosevelt administration, during the Second World War, they knew that some people probably suspected that the Russians, the Soviets, were not the, uh, the highest moral standard one could ever come up with. But, so he said, they, they had to launch a huge PR effort, and they did. And they used, in those days, of course, there was, despite the fact Biden doesn't seem to know it, there was no TV then. Uh, there was no uh, internet. The way that they promoted these was through films, and also, when you went to see a, a movie, they had these lead-ins, you know, in the movies. And they were loaded with, oh, Uncle Joe is a great fella. He, uh, we're lucky to have such a wonderful ally. Well, this guy, Davies, wrote a book. And it was called Mission to Moscow. Now, after I read the book, and it was part of this spread the tale, you know, about how great the Russians were. After I read the book, I, I, the book was nauseating, but, and I didn't think I, it could get, ever get any worse, until it did. They, they had him, they convinced Hollywood to make a movie, and it's called Mission to Moscow. And it's got a lead-in by this guy, and then somebody else plays his part. This, th this is well beyond nauseating. The, the English language, unlike Russian and German and some of the others, they, they don't have adjectives strong enough to 
to really tell you what this is. Well, we got some nouns that we could use and get bounced off the air, but this is this is what the federal government is able. These are the lengths to which they may go to do this. If you're interested, this one also is available. You can get the DVD of this horrible thing for I think about ten bucks on Amazon, and it's on YouTube as well. Mission to Moscow. Anybody who thinks that we've seen the absolute worst that the media can ever do, you look at this. I'm not so sure this this isn't used as this training materials at Columbia University School of Journalism. I don't know, but this was as bad as it got. And they tried de deliberately through the war uh, to just paint this picture of, oh, we are so lucky to have the Soviets as allies. And we're so fortunate they're, that they're accepting our billions of dollars of, uh, of, of aid and assistance, tanks, right up here in Great Falls, Montana. There was a guy named Major... Uh, Jordan, George Racy, I think, George, George, uh, Jordan, I think his name was. <laughs> he was in charge of an operation where American pilots flew American planes to uh, the far east region of the Soviet Union, turned them over to Stalin. And what they did, of course, is that they took the white stars on the thing and they painted them over red and they said, see, we made this. And this was done through the Mormons run with tanks, trucks, spam, little cans of spam. I have heard veterans of the Soviet Army. I, I worked with one years later, and he said, you know what? If we didn't have those cans of Spam, we would have starved to death. We didn't have anything to eat. If it weren't for that, we fed them, we outfitted them, et cetera. And Gorbachev denied that to, uh, to George Bush. Right up to the time the Soviet Union, but no, no, that's not true. No, we, we did all that. We made all this stuff. Uh, so there has to be some kind of reckoning sooner or later. Uh, how many... <laughs> How many uh, overtures have we made? Look what, uh, look what Clinton did when he convinced them through the Brussels Convention that, oh, Ukraine, you should give up your nuclear weapons, and we, the United States, we will guarantee that you'll be safe. Mm -hmm. That was about as worthful, worthwhile as the, uh, as the Paris uh, peace talks uh, about the Vietnam War when we assured the South Vietnamese not to worry. They come down the, from the north like that, we'll be back with massive force. And as it turned out, the Democrat Congress ended up, after the invasion of the North Vietnamese down there, headed for Saigon, the only thing the Democrat Congress would give Gerald Ford, who had succeeded Nixon, was uh, Band-Aids, uh, medical supplies, blankets. And then you pass forward, that's exactly what Obama gave the Ukraine when, th when this stuff started with the Russians back, back when Obama was president. Funny how history repeats itself. You mentioned spread the tale, and most of the spreading of the tale that you talk to to a lot of our listeners would kind of be deemed as ancient history. Mm -hmm. And yet, right here in Wyoming, there was an article. Can you touch on that just briefly, and then we'll go to Garrett? That was in the Sheridan Press. One of their favorite syndicated columnists, Kathleen Parker, was reporting on the Ukraine situation, and she wrote in that article, I think it's in the Tuesday, March 15th, edition of the Sheridan Press. <laughs> she said, uh, well, you know, I rely quite a bit on my information uh, for Russia, that part of the world, on Nina Khrushcheva, who is the great-granddaughter of Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev, one of the swell fellas uh, from Kremlin past. 
And in that uh, in that article, I think she, I think Khrushcheva said something like, "I'm so distressed by all this because I can't believe that the the country that defeated Nazi Germany would do these things." And I said, "The country? That, pardon me? That, by the way, was the Soviet line all the way through the rest." Yeah, the West gave us some stuff. It said we did the fighting. We took Berlin. We did this. But later, uh, the, the, the crowning virtue of that one was, that article was, that she, uh, Parker reported that Nina Khrushchev had told her, well, you know, a lot of things aren't understood. For example, my great-grandfather, you know, some people consider he was this or that. But I just remember him as a gentle giant. And I said, uh, okay. So it was Uncle Joe then, and now it's Gentle Giant uh, uh, Khrushchev. You see, these folks seem to be immune to historical facts. They, they, don't, they, they, they must take some special kind of formula to immunize themselves from them. I don't know, but that one is the one that put me on the ceiling. I was ready to write a, uh, a letter to the editor of the Sheridan Press, which is probably a waste of time anyway. But Might as well talk to a brick wall. Yeah, pretty much. That's probably the same thing with the Buffalo Bulletin, too. So I sort of have, well, I have two uh, comments or questions. First off, I agree that uh, the journalists here are spreading propaganda, mm -hmm. but I've always credited it to Goebbels instead of Davies. And I've seen Mission to Moscow. I didn't know the history of, about it until you brought it up. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to go watch it again and get that book and read it. But I know not right after you've eaten, though. That's uh, okay, I won't. I won't right after I eat. Spam. So I've always blamed um, the press for taking on what Goebbels did in Nazi Germany at the time, and you know they consolidated the media. In, a, in in essence, as far as I'm concerned, the major media is consolidated. They have the same talking points. They have the same, you know, uh, targets. Uh, and that's that's good. That's a good observation. And of course, a lot of this is linked historically. Uh, Goebbels wrote himself that, you know where he learned a lot of his techniques? No. From the Wilson administration, World War I, when they were propagandizing the people to make sure we've got to get over there and save Europe. And Goebbels studied a lot of the methods that, that the Wilson administration used, and he said, hey, that's pretty good stuff. I think I'll work on it. And then, of course, he refined it. There was another fellow he learned a lot from. A guy named uh, Anatoly Lunacharsky, who was the first, who was Lenin's first uh, People's Commissar of uh, Education and Public Enlightenment. Uh, Goebbels learned quite a bit from him too. But that whole stream uh, is it, it kind of you wonder. Speaking of stream, they call it the mainstream media, and I can't figure out where the stream runs through Havana or Beijing. I'm not sure, but if that's mainstream, we, we all have problems. I think it depends on when the check is being cashed, <laughs> personally. My second um, sort of point, too, is is that the the vote that killed the arms package to South, South Vietnam at the time came from Senator Biden. I believe that was his first vote as a senator. And, and then now we see, you brought it up, Afghanistan, the two sort of bookend his career now. He started mm -hmm. out, as far as I'm concerned, he was in the pocket of the Chinese then, Otherwise, why would you vote against that? And he still is. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if he was the sponsor of the bill that killed it, but I know for a fact that he voted with them, and he spoke on the floor of the, of the Senate in strong support, saying, "We listen, we've invested enough blood and enough treasure. And 
a couple of the other side of the aisle fellows said, wait a minute, Senator, but how, what do we do with this treaty where we guaranteed these people? They fought, bled, and died too. And now we're just kind of letting them, well, sorry, try again later. Well, as far as I'm concerned, we should have been, you know, to them what France was to us, <laughs> you know, because they were fighting for their independence. You know, it's interesting you're talking about history. I remember, and I don't remember exactly the year, but uh, uh, Barry Goldwater, <clears throat> who ran against uh, Landslide Linden in 1964, um, he gave an interview, I believe it was to the Stars and Stripes, the military newspaper, and this correspondent asked him, he said, well, Senator Goldwater, let's finish the interview. He said, I can't help but ask you, what would you have done about Vietnam had you been elected? And Goldwater paused for a minute and he said, you know, I think, I, as I recall, uh, I would have sent, if I had been elected on November 3rd, 1964, about November 10th, I would have sent Ho Chi Minh a nice private message and I'd have said, Ho, I'm going to tell you what. On January, whatever it was, I'm going to, next year, I'm going to be inaugurated as President of the United States. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have two weeks from that date to live up to what you agreed to in the 1954 treaty arrangement that says set all that stuff up. Or, he paused, and the correspondent said, or what? And he said, dot, dot, dot. I didn't need to say anything else. Uh, that war, so to speak, People that are a lot smarter than I am militarily uh, and who remember the time, they've told me that every time the United States in, in this stampede to negotiate and negotiate, every time the North Vietnamese would say, okay, we'll, we'll meet and we'll talk, but first you've got you to terminate the bombing. They cut off the bombing. Talks never happened. Went along. That was like four times they did that. I think Goldwater being a major general in the Air Force Reserve, I think probably he'd have settled some of that from about 30,000 feet. And I think that would have been maybe a three-week operation. It, it's interesting you say that because my dad was stationed at Minot Air Force Base. And we lived... Nice at, winters, huh? Well, my folks are from Minot. <laughs> you know, long story about how they I got there. didn't know too. any better. <laughs> uh, they were born there. You're used to it. You're acclimated. But I remember uh, being four, five, and the, 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 the B-52's taken off and just running a circular loop for weeks and weeks and weeks and then mm -hmm. stopping for a while. Yep. And then running what, linebacker one, linebacker two with, with Nixon, right? Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is that some people say, no, 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 the North Vietnamese had this very sophisticated uh, SAM site technology. Not in 1965 they didn't. Yeah. The Soviets started giving them that about 67, and that's when a lot of our pilots got shot down. Well, and a good friend of mine was, um, his call sign in the Air Force with, a, with an F-104 was Bear. So he flew Navigator. He eventually got back up to a pilot. But he worked for the Iron Hand missions. So they were brave enough, I'd probably say slightly crazy, to where they take turns being bait and mm -hmm. finding the SAM missiles and then targeting them. Well, Charlie, what fascinates me by history is that no matter how many times things are are repeated, that we continue to do the same things. I mean, you can you can pick any topic that you want, 
and history always repeats itself. So Amen. if we're talking about Russia today, mm-hmm. um, we can we can look at what Napoleon Bonaparte tried to do, <laughs> and then some years later, well, Hitler tried to do the same thing, and the result was the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think that all of the people that inhabit this current administration are unaware of who Vladimir Putin is, um, what his ambitions are, why he wants Ukraine. I mean, certainly they have to know. My question is, why are the people that are running our administration making every move that plays into Vladimir Putin's hands? Why are they doing that? Is it that they are Russia sympathizers, or is it that, that they buy into the propaganda? I don't think that one's the case because I don't think that there are any coincidences in politics. But I, I, I want to get your perspective on what you think their motivation is by behind everything that they're doing. That's an interesting question. It's a good one. I, uh, by the way, I don't, I, I don't fully agree as to history repeating itself. And as uh, professor, as uh, philosopher George Santayana famously noticed, you know, those who fail to learn from history are going to repeat it. Uh, I would add there's another corollary, and those of us who even do know have to sit there and put up with watching the people that, that, that don't, don't know it. Uh, and, and generally, I don't, believe in consp- I don't believe in coincidences very much, period. As to the motivation of the people in this administration, um, I have to feel, that, again, what I suggested today was looking at these historical events through the eyes of Vladimir Putin. I would respond to you that perhaps what we need to do is look at Vladimir Putin through the eyes of these people that are looking at him. Because it's very, very likely, I think, given the status of the Democrat Party as we see it today, that their view of Vladimir Putin may be very, very different from ours. And there, I get a kick out of uh, some of these... Some people... I've heard it said that, oh, you know, the southern border, if... if, if President Biden should do this. President Biden should do that to fix it. I just want to interrupt him and say, in other words, you don't think that he did this on purpose? This is some kind of mistake. You. This reminds me of, speaking of history, there were stories that came out of the Soviet gulag where, talk about indoctrination and, and, and the level of toxicity of indoctrination over time. There were actually uh, slave labor in, inmates in the gulag system that were so shocked that they were there because it was so loyal to the system etc they were actually writing letters to joseph stalin saying come at stalin a terrible thing has happened please i'm sure you're not aware of it please take action to get me out of here when it was joseph stalin who used to sit up till four o'clock in the morning signing thousands and thousands of death warrants and 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 sending people to the camps so they were going to appeal to the guy who had sent them there to get them out so we're going to appeal to to the guy who single-handedly ruined the border security to fix the border security and i take that same view uh, I, you, you mentioned China vis-a-vis Biden. Uh, this is, there, there are some strong signals that we're getting about the connections there. And what about the role of the Chinese in this? China is sitting there just, I think, licking their chop. They're, they're, they're sitting there right now. It was no, again, coincidence. Notice that Putin had all these forces arrayed against Ukraine. 
But it wasn't until after the Olympics in Chinese, China that closed that he actually did it. Coincidence? Mm. And he had met with Xi during, during those Olympics. So as to the people in this administration, I have to feel that they are uh, on board with a lot of the new green dealers, which I call nothing but the old red deal. Uh, but the, I mean, what, it, they, they actually believe, I think, that we, we should definitely just destroy the fossil fuel industry right now, as uh, Buttigieg said, I think, not long ago. Oh, I go buy an electric car. Okay. Mr. Buttigieg, do you realize the low percentage of, of, of uh, recharging those electric batteries that comes from the electricity that's actually generated by solar and wind? It's about 12%. So what do we, how do we, they, they have their agenda. And they're, they're quite Machiavellian about it in the sense that they'll conceal it as long as they can. But the interesting thing is, since the days of Obama, they have gradually pulled back the Wizard of Oz curtain a little bit more and a little bit more. I think we've got a pretty good view of those people now. You think it's just a religious, a, a religious devotion to the, the benefits of socialism? I mean, do you think the propaganda has gone that far? You know, I, I no longer call it socialism. I don't usually refer, when I'm speaking to, to people, uh, I, I don't usually refer to socialism or communism, especially young people. Because they've been taught now that there's nothing wrong with that. We have very high percentages of young people who say, yeah, socialism sounds great. What I have chosen to call it is collectivism. Because in effect, that's what it is. If you start with the Jacobins in France and you move forward through the Marx era in Europe, right through Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, what's the, what's the common denominator? Uh... It kill any type of belief in God, you secure all the weapons from people that could cause problems for you, and you drill deep on the idea that whether it's called, uh, Hitler called it Volksgemeinschaft, which means the people's community, or the Soviets for years called it Sovietsky Narod, the Soviet people. It's always the collective is extolled, and the individual, his role is simply to shut up, get in line, click your heels, and don't make any trouble. Do what you're told. Wear that mask. Get that shot. Be quiet. Is is that why during World War II and before that, when, when Roosevelt was president and making up to Stalin and all those kinds of things, that he, Stalin was the good guy and Hitler was the bad guy? Because our leaders have been gradually pushing us toward socialism at the time. Um and they saw that as a way to do it. Why? Why was? Why was Stalin not a bad guy? Well, again, I don't want to oversimplify the fact that, that we were fighting a very tenacious enemy. I mean, Nazi Germany. Uh, we're, the world is very fortunate that Hitler was crazy and and stupid. Both. Of course, yes. He was uh, like Stalin. He was also a sociopath and a psychopath, uh, but. At the time, the United States, remember, we had two great powers to deal with. We had to deal with the Japanese on one hand, and we had to deal with... So the, the theory was, as I read it uh, through history, was that Roosevelt had said, okay, Europe first. We have to deal with Europe first because they perceived Nazi Germany as much more dangerous and deadly than the, the Japanese. 
Uh, and to do that, they ha they thought the only way to do that, the only Britain isn't going to do it. I mean, if Hitler hadn't have messed up Dunkirk, Britain would have been out of the war in 1940. But uh, the Soviets had the manpower, and then mankind was fortunate enough that Madman Hitler decided to break that agreement and attack the Soviet Union. Uh, so I think they thought, well, we, we better give this guy what he needs. But in order to do that, notice what they sacrificed. They sacrificed their moral bearings. They said, this Hitler is so dangerous and so evil that we're even going to declare this guy, well, less dangerous, less, yeah, he does some bad things. Nah, who cares? Because he's going to help us get rid of this really bad guy. Uh, interestingly, Churchill had a, had a theory. He didn't want, Stalin pushed for a second front opening in, in, in France for years. Uh, Churchill wanted to go up through the Balkans and go up into Poland. And his logic was, if we do that, we, we prevent the Soviet military from getting Poland and half of Germany and Czechoslovakia and all the rest of that. Well, Franklin Roosevelt wouldn't have any of it. Uh, he, he, just, he just, you know, got his hackles up and said, no, we're going to do what Stalin wants. He right. But so after the really bad guy was gone, meaning Hitler, why did we continue a love affair with Stalin? Well, first of all, Roosevelt had passed away in April. The war ended in May. But, you see, by that time, the cancer had metastasized in Eastern Europe to the point where you're going you're gonna to go throw them out. Uh, this, this, is, this, this brings up an interesting point, though, of geopolitics. Uh, geopolitically speaking, can you imagine if in 1945, hypothetically, Joseph Stalin had had the exclusive, the only atomic weapon in the world and the means to deliver it. What do you suppose he would have done with that? <laughs> uh, I think we'd have been looking at a whole different world than we are today. Now, I'm not saying we should have lobbed one onto him. I think, though, that George Patton was right. Uh, unfortunately, he let too many people hear him say it and it cost him his life, I'm afraid. But he said, you know, you're going to have to deal with these guys. They're just as bad as Hitler was. And, and yet we allow, uh, I want to recommend another book to you, Chris Adamo, I don't know if you know him, he wrote a, an excellent book called Defeating uh, Radicals, Rules for Defeating Radicals, that's the title of the book. And he says in there, we have to stop playing on their ground. We have to stop seeding the, the, the high ground to them. We use terms that we have no business in. White supremacy, an American general is talking about white supremacy when that's going on over there, please. And this, this, this line that they, that, they, that they put, the demarcation line, historically they want us to think, all the way from the days of the French Revolution, that's where it came from, that Stalin and, and the communists are over here on the left and Hitler's way over here on the right. And then the next thing they do is when they talk about the right in the United States, oh, I see who you're associated with, when that's completely bogus. Hitler and Stalin were just two, the, the Russians say, two, two uh, boots as a pair. That's what they are. They were exact, they were almost, if you, they were just the flip side of the same coin. And yet, 
We, sent, we, we allow this dichotomy. What that line, if you're going to draw it horizontally, should say, way on the left, it should say maximum compulsion. And way on the right, it should say maximum individual freedom. Now, now, which one do you want? Take your choice because you, you got to choose sooner or later. I want to take things back to today. Hmm? In the Ukraine right now, there are U.S.-funded biolabs working on such things as anthrax. And you described... Vladimir Putin, I can't say it as properly as you do, but you described all the things that he knows. Mm -hmm. And here he is sitting, surrounding all of these weapons. What do you think about that? Uh, I, th there's a great debate going on now. The, the administration people are saying, no, no, that's, that's baloney. No, no, those aren't. First, they tried to say the labs didn't exist. Then they tried to say, no, we didn't fund them. Now, I don't know what they're saying this week, but it'll change. Uh, the danger there, uh, the first question you have to ask is, by the way, Dr. Fauci, did you fund any of that stuff over there too? Uh, what are we doing putting American taxpayer money into that type of research anywhere, anywhere. The second question to ask is, okay, if we did that, uh, now what? And they'll never get to the now what. But Putin looks at it, frankly, I think it's kind of another little supporting uh, plank of what he's doing. People have asked me a lot lately, what do you think he's really after? What is it that he, what's the end game for him? And I think certain parts of it were very foreseeable. Uh, he got Crimea from the Ukraine, although historically, I have to tell you, the, Crine the Crimean Peninsula became part of the Russian Empire under Catherine the Great in the 18th century. Uh, I was in Sochi. I spent a couple of days there. I heard not a syllable of Ukrainian spoken there. That area was populated by Russians, ethnic Russians for Old uh, gentle giant Khrushchev, in 1956, he decided, being of Ukrainian descent, he would, he would uh, gift that Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Okay, thanks. So the Crimean Peninsula doesn't bother me nearly as much. And even in the Donbass, in the eastern Ukraine, Lugansk and Donetsk in that area, uh, I spent six weeks in Donetsk. It was one of the areas we showed the exhibit in. And... Interesting little side story. The first day that we got there, we usually didn't set up the exhibit right away, so we'd walk around the town, you know, do this, that. We'd have a meal in a restaurant, see what. I went into, I was walking by and I saw a bookstore. I walked in there and I said, Excuse me, speaking Russian to the guy, I said, Can you, I'm looking for a book. He said, What kind? I said, I'd like to get a, a Russian, Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Russian dictionary. And he looked at me like I'd fallen out of a tree. He said, What? I said it again. He said, no, we don't have such a thing. He said, why would anybody need one? And sure enough, in the six weeks that I spent in Donetsk, moving around at the exhibit, talking to hundreds of people uh, in the restaurants and other shops we visited, six weeks, I never heard one syllable of Ukrainian spoken. Not one. The Donbass was also populated by ethnic Russians during the Industrial Revolution, when what was driving it? Coal. The Donbass is loaded with coal. That's their major economic thing and it was populated by russians still is so i think putin looks at that and he says wait a minute the people of lugansk district and donetsk have voted to create independent states and they asked us to, for protection 
Well, it's a perfect excuse to go in and do it. Why is the real question? So that's understandable. He wants that. He'll get that. But the, the other thing is, well, then why is he doing all this other stuff? Why is he doing that to, to Kiev and Kharkov and Lvov and all Why? I think he wants basically uh, to do just enough damage to be able to say to the rest of the world, look at this. If you mess with me, your cities are going to look like that. Is that what you want? It seems to me to be, I can't picture a scenario where he occupies it and runs some kind of occupied government because the Ukrainians are never going to stand for that. That will create problems for him the rest of his life. So we'll see. Do I know? No. Do our people know? No. But we'll see. I think there's a lot of different things going on here simultaneously. One of the claims that uh, Putin has made is that there's Nazis in the Ukraine. <laughs> And that there's battalions in the Ukrainian army that are Nazi. The Azov battalion is the one that he cites, I believe. Is mm-hmm. that true or, or fiction? That's an old, that's an, there's another example of something that, you know, like our dichotomy of left, mm-hmm. right, you know, this, that. That's another uh, thing that was, that's a holdover from World War II. Because when the Germans invaded, uh, the ethnic peoples, especially in the Baltics and the Ukrainians, they said, hooray, get in here. Get that Stalin guy. We'll help you. We'll help you get him. And there were formed battalions, SS battalions. There was the Galicia SS in the western Ukraine. And that, of course, they, they, they murdered them all after the war. They killed them all, and rightly so, I guess. But that is a holdover from that time. And he's playing on old historical things that haven't been true. And, and, I mean, they've got a, they've got a president that's, that's Jewish. Uh, that's a strange kind of Nazi. I've, I've never seen that before. Not that long ago, I spent a week in Cheyenne during the special session back in October. And the rhetoric that I heard on the floor of the Wyoming legislature, had you had you dressed them in green and handed out red stars, I mean, it, it would have been very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the masks were off. And the political ideology of the people that represent everybody in this room was very clear. One representative said, uh, I don't care if the test hurts. What's important is that we save everybody, you know, the good of the whole, the collectivism that you spoke about. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, there were other people that said, well, you know, it's not, it's not a liberty question. We're protecting <laughs> everybody. And, and so my question to you, um, Charlie, is since the masks are off, since we know that we have people that have a religious devotion to to socialist principles or the collectivism that you spoke about. What now? What do we what do we need to learn? What do we need to do? How do we how do we get back to the the Wyoming and the United States that we all remember and that we want to return to? How do we how do we grab a hold of that liberty that all of us cherish? Well I think there's good news and bad news in the response. I'm afraid the bad news is that I have come to the realization, the reality, that the America that I grew up in, in the 1950s, early 60s, in Arizona, for example, uh, I, I th- I'm afraid that's, that's not doable. What we need to do is to save as much of it as we can. We need to exorcise as much of this stuff as we can to retain as much of that as we possibly could. So I think in the last paragraph of my 
March submission. I don't know if I'm letting any cats out of bags or anything, but I have suggested my March submission to the Conservative Chronicle kind of takes on this rhino stuff. What incensed me was the CRT vote uh, and the way that was sabotaged. Um, And and I think I concluded my article with something like, you know, if if you're going to be a Democrat, just, just take the R off, put the D on there. And I'm urging everybody to look, we have wild leg now. You can see how your local representatives voted on these things. For God's sake, look at it. Get involved. Uh, as they used to say, politics is a participatory sport. You either take part or you'll get taken apart. And unfortunately, our people never, they, they as yet, they still don't perceive, I think, the danger, the imminent danger to that, which you're referring to. And that's what I suggest. The basic thing they have to do, get involved Take the 15, 20 minutes to find out how did your represent your representative vote on CRT, on crossover voting, on gun issues. Find out. And if they didn't vote your way, then hopefully there's going to be a challenger in the primary. That's what we have to do. I'm afraid the Republican Party is never going to be fixed from the top. It's going to have to be fixed from the bottom up. That's the way I see it. Just wanted to comment on, on that briefly last night or yesterday in Sheridan we had the Sheridan County GOP precinct convention convention mm-hmm. county convention I, I want to get the words right but obviously they're not going to come that way and I got a call later on this morning from somebody who was there who just said I cannot believe how we've gotten to where we are I'm told that I should be a precinct committee woman. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. So we started spoon feeding. This is what you do. This is this is who you need to talk to. Mm-hmm. This is an organization there. But I bring this up because what we've seen in Sheridan County over the last five to ten years is a huge grassroots swelling up that is taking the party back, first of all, that is taking the county back, that is taking the state back, and now other counties, Johnson County, for example, are beginning to follow suit. See, same thing down in Converse County. And mm-hmm. this is moving. Thank you for what you're doing here and for providing some of that inspiration and for giving us a glimpse of where we're going if we don't stop this. Because everybody will sit there and say, this, this could never happen. Yeah, what I try to do if I talk to groups, I don't do this very often anymore with groups, but I I try to say two things to them. First of all, uh, I have seen the end of this current movie. I've seen it. It's, It's not a nice thing to see. I have seen people having to live their lives in ways that you don't ever want to know about, much less have to do. And to the young people, I try to say, Okay, I realize that you've been told certain things, but just stop, stop and think now for a minute. We need to look at civics, what we used to call civics, and we, you, you, you need to really understand, you need to learn, and there's many resources available for you to do it. You need to learn what a constitutional republic is. We're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic for a reason, and you need to focus on, if nothing else, the checks and balances in that system. That's our safety valve. And this is a risk-reward for the young people. 
you you can you can go ahead and say wow that sounds neat just like the venezuelans did 25 years ago or you can say do i really want to risk that maybe i better just slow down a little and look at look at some facts but again i i've come up with another one i think i'm going to coin it and use it in my books you can you can you can either learn from history or you can live how how it's going to how it's going to play out next time because it will play out as you said it repeats itself recently on my program i did a did a episode that that was called the political pendulum swings both ways mm-hmm. and and my point in it was that you know we tend to say that it either swings to the right and it swings to the left and you you had a good analogy that that uh, stalin and hitler were two sides of the same coin my point is that if we push too hard either one direction well then it swings around to the other side and and if you if you understand history you can see that very very clearly mm-hmm. but the problem that i see going on right now in our schools in our communities is first that people don't don't know how to read history books evidently um, but the books that they're reading are not history and you mentioned it before we started uh, recording that you're either engaging in history or you're engaging in histrionics. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just briefly explain what you meant by that? Because I think it's really important. Well, as I also mentioned, I think in our little pre-conversation, I said, about seven or eight years ago, uh, I got a hold of a textbook uh, that they were using in Sheridan High on teach history. And I just kind of thumbed up there and I found in World War II, there was a highlighted paragraph in there. It was a used book that I got, and the, <laughs> the student had highlighted this paragraph. It said something like, in April 1945, uh, the, the world, with the death of Franklin Roosevelt, the world lost a great pragmatic leader. And I thought, okay. Uh, and, th- and that's when I first started looking, because I hadn't looked at the teaching of history in, in, in quite some time. I was doing other things. Um, but uh, there's history, and there's mythology. Unfortunately, mythology, the longer it's allowed, it's sort of like a cancer. The longer it's in there, it metastasizes, and pretty soon you can't, you can't get it out. It just becomes a... And that's why I don't refer to that much anymore, socialism, communism. I'd rather tell them what it really is because they've been lied to as far as socialism and communism. I remember shortly after Barack Obama was elected, there was a thing on Fox News somewhere where they had this, uh, this teacher... In a, in a little elementary school, and she was leading the children a little song, Barack Hussein Obama. Mm, mm, mm. See, I don't call this, by the way, this is the public schools. I call them the government schools because really that's what they are. And they're tied in with all sorts of political arrangements that we're all aware of. We're all aware of. I don't think that many parents are, although every cloud having a silver lining, when they shut those schools down, in a number of school districts, they did. Uh, then the parents got to actually have a peek at home at some of this garbage that the teachers were teaching them. So that was the silver lining to that cloud. And you fast forward it in San Francisco. San Francisco. They recalled, I think it was three of those, three or four of those uh, superintendents of public education. And the vote was something like 70-30 in San Francisco. Not in Sheridan, Wyoming, San Francisco. So it's always a matter of information. And with these regimes, 
I heard an unfortunate thing about uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky today. He apparently has made a statement. He said, well, we have too much information going out of here from too many sources. It's now going to come through me. Everything that's coming out of Ukraine comes through my office. That is, to, that's a red flag to me uh, because the absolute lockdown, Goebbels control of information, this is how you get this done. And unfortunately, history tells us that if you get people young enough and you tell them certain things often enough and they don't have access to be able to find out any type of contravailing opinion, People have wondered, I know from my time in Germany, I know that people would say, gosh, these Germans are okay. How in the world did they convince these Germans to stick people in gas chambers and burn them up? Well, the answer to that is, starting in 1933, they made the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler Youth Army, mandatory at age 10. And so by 1941, 42, those kids had all grown up. They were Wehrmacht soldiers or SS troopers or whatever. And I'll never forget one interview I saw. It was on another uh, very, very well done documentary about Auschwitz. They were interviewing this guy who had been a, he was in the first SS infantry uh, brigade in Russia, and he was part of the firing details. And they were interviewing him, uh, and they asked him, uh, okay, so you, you shot women and children. And he said, yes. And then he went through this thing. He said, well, you have to understand they were Jews. And for us, you know, like in my case, the Jews had cheated my parents. Then the interviewer said, and German, uh, what in God's name did these uh, women and little children miles away from where you did, what did they have to do with your family's misfortune that you're referring to? And his answer was, he looked right in there and he said, Nothing, but for us, they were Jews. In other words, they were taught from this high, Jews are evil. They must be killed. Now, when I hear white supremacy today, when I hear the Department of Justice making statements that white supremacy is dangerous, the antenna goes straight up. Because this is the kind of thing. There have been stories of children young children separated by race and they would tell the little white ones well you know now these other ones over here the people the little kids of color your class race you have to be very respectful of them you have to da, 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 and you have to apologize for them for all the things that you your, your your race has done to them well that's like saying and i wrote about it i think in the march column i quoted the guy from uh, teton county who brought that argument up about Jews, et cetera, in the CRT teaching. He said, this is, oh, you can't run. I forget the wording of it, but you'll read it in the March issue. And I said, what, what in the world does that have to do with teaching this poison to children in Wyoming today? What do young, I'll just be blunt about it, what do young white children have to do with what the Democrat Party did, by the way, in the South, in the Confederacy? with the Jim Crow, law, Jim Crow laws and all that. What? Please show me the connection. Because I know what guilt by association is, but I've never heard of guilt by genetics. This, this, is, this is, you want to talk about Nazism, this is, this is dangerous stuff. Because then the next step, if that, if that first level is accepted, 
What's the next step? Now we better isolate them. Now we better punish them. Now we better make them publicly confess. Look at the Chinese Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s where these poor guys uh, were identified. They had to walk over barefoot over broken glass as these people were beating on them and they had big signs on them and they had to publicly confess, oh, I'm guilty of this, I'm guilty of that, forgive me. And then they killed them. Uh, I'm not saying we're there yet, but when it, if, this is why we have diagnostics in medicine. You, know, you want to find that tumor when it's really little so that you can treat it. And I'm afraid we're looking at a lot of little tumors here today that unless they're treated, the danger, I'm not saying it will do that, but there's a danger that it could. And if that's the case, knowing history, we better look at what it could morph into. What it has morphed into. Yes, and what it could here morph into. That's my point. Well, and you've, I mean, you brought up all of that and post the the election uh, and the apparent installation of, uh, I call them word salad. Um, <laughs> there was people on the main, on the mainstream media calling for the the, the, the deplorables to be eliminated mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're on the edge of that. But um, I'm glad you brought up collectivism. Uh, what I would like to do, since I think we're getting down to the end of this, is, you know, Ken's nodding his head, yeah, we are, is, um, you know, you've seen Russia. I've seen Hungary post the, the wall coming down. That was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you also seem to be well-versed in socialism and how we got to socialism. Can you quickly discuss the parallel tracks that, in my view, Hitler and Stalin took to get to where they are. And, and you actually brought up the parallelism, how they're the same, opposite sides of the same coin. Um, because I think people need to understand that. I mean, the, the young kids are going, oh, collectivism's not bad. You know, well, uh, um, let's, have, let's have you, who've seen it up front and, and in person, discuss how, we, how they got there and um, why, it, why it is bad. Well, that... That may be a long, long discussion for another time, maybe, because I would simply go to the chase on it and say, uh, if you look back through history, it's almost always been foresaged by some kind of crisis. You remember what Rahm Emanuel said in the Obama White House? Never let a crisis go to waste. And these guys are real pros at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The German economy was on its knees. the Russian, uh, same thing, after World War One, they are always there, and they wait for that, what did we say about the KGB? Opportunity plus weakness, attack. And so now they're looking in this society for various opportunities, and they, th- they see huge opportunities in doing what the Communist Party of the United States has tried to be doing since the 1920s, divide, divide. They have to have divicity, so you have to have uh, you have to split people by gender, by race, by background, by ethnicity, by political. Aff- and once you, once you do that and you set enough people against each other, how do you stop that? If it goes down the trail, how do you stop that? So your theory is, of course, identity politics, identity politics is just socialism rejiggered. It's all part of the same collectivist mentality. If you really want to understand it, Go back and do some reading on the Jacobins of the French Revolution. I want to thank you very much for coming today. And I think that we have kind of gotten into something that we could do more on later, if you're willing to do that. 
one of the points that you mentioned a little while back that I want to just end with is that, like you said, we have Wyoleg. You can go find out how your representatives voted. You don't have to know everything. Just know what you're going to vote on. You don't have to know all of history. Start learning something. It just starts with a little bit. Educate yourself on something. So thank you very much, and we'll see you again. Okay, my pleasure.